Welcome to Our Hen House and Happy New Year. This is Jasmine Singer. This is Marianne Sullivan. (laughs) And on this week's show, we have the absolute perfect New Year's show. If you're wondering how to show up for animals and the earth itself this year, Anita Cronge and Nicola Harris of the Animal Save Movement have the answer. Advocating for the plant-based treaty within your local community might just be the most important thing that any of us could possibly do. So here's to 2022 and to making the real changes that we so desperately need. Well, that's for sure. We really do need them. So on this week's Flock bonus segment, I will be continuing my conversation with Anita and Nicola. As always, if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after the podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the Flock and you can afford it and you want to, and I don't know why you wouldn't want to, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. I love that. Thank you so much to everyone who is in the flock. If you are a flock member, join us for our Flock First Friday Zoom call that's coming up this Friday. They're once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. As you know, we chit-chat about activism and dealing with this world that we're in. We talk to some recent podcast guests, and it's always an inspiring and inspiring conversation. So if you are a member of The Flock, check out The Flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. Don't forget, you can also set up one-on-one meetings with me. They are booking up. So if you're interested, email jen at jen at ourhenhouse.org, and we'll get you on the books. Since we're on the subject of our flock, I just want to say we did it. We raised Whee! our 20 <laughs> We we have now funded Marianne to officially be our sound person to make Whee! that noise in every I get episode. a lot of extra bucks for this. Thank you so much to everyone for helping us to meet our goal. This was a very big year for us, a very big ask to reach $20,000 in fundraising from our general public, our listeners. That was, of course, matched by our Barnyard benefactors who pooled together an additional $20,000. And it was also matched by an anonymous donor who threw in another $20,000. All of that was unlocked thanks to you. And we did the vast majority of our fundraising at the end of the year per usual, and it was down to the wire. So you made it happen. And so thank you so very much for that. We have so much in place for this year. We're so excited about all of the programming, maybe some new programming. Stay tuned. We shall see. So it's the new year. I am into this sort of like arbitrary line in the sand, creating new goals, creating new plans, uh, starting fresh with a brand new planner. I just got one. I never get through the entire year in my planner, but every year I think I'm going to, so I get it. Do you have that too, where you're like, oh, new year? I I don't do planners. I don't organize anything. My life is complete chaos. Oh, okay. You know, I've I've gotten this far in chaos. I'm not going to quit now. You might as well stay with it. This is the year... We stay chaos. Not me. I'm. I'm. I do have chaos, but I'm endlessly trying to override it. Actually, I am too. It's like my my email box. It's like it makes me want to cry. Well, social you, media I, makes me want to cry too. I, I I wasn't meant for this world. Maybe this is the year that you do things that don't make you want to cry. I'm just saying. 
Oh, I there's an idea. There's I use idea. something called supernatural. I mean, no, superhuman. I also do something called supernatural. I always say the wrong thing. Supernatural is my virtual reality workout program, but superhuman is the what I use for my inbox management, and it really does work. And it's pretty intuitive. I think I'll try that this year. Good. Okay, cool. Report back and let us know. I am thinking this year of making my word of the year, which is something that I got from the Gretchen Rubin, who's a podcast or podcaster and an author and a speaker. She suggests sometimes, and I'm totally botching this up, but she suggests thinking of a, a word to bring with you into your year. And I want mine to be curiosity. I want to look at, like what you just said, I would want to look at issues like that that I'm having with curiosity. I really want to slow down. I don't understand why my goal setting is always so in fast motion. Uh, You know, I was talking to someone about how I want to write a book every two to three years. And I said, it's a little unrealistic. It's a little aspirational. And she was like, well, then why? then why do you want it to be like two to three years? And I was like, because I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. You know, instead of every three to four years, which is still a good thing, you know? So I want to look at that with curiosity and try and find the flow a little bit more. But that being said, it's hard to change that rhythm when we are focusing our, our, our work and our life on changing the world for animals. It's hard to slow that down. I don't know how to address that. Do you have any ideas? No. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. I'm not well prepared for the New Year's celebration. I admit it. Like I don't have resolutions. I never have resolutions because I just get depressed by them because then I break them. I'm just, I'm not a disciplined person. I, you know, I think acceptance, that'll be my word. I will accept what a mess I am and just, and just, you know, enjoy myself. Yeah, I do hear a lot of judgment in the way you talk about yourself. And I'm wondering. Totally. If- well, you know, if you had to live in here, you would be judgmental too. It's confusing no. sometimes, but, but, and a little, and, and rather chaotic. And, and like, I'm just not organized. I do know that by now that ain't going to happen. And I'm not like, if I really wanted it to happen, it probably would have happened before this. So, so yeah, acceptance. I'm, I'm going to accept it. My best friend Erica and I talk about radical, the word radical, because I'll put it in front of something when I really mean it, like radical acceptance, radical body positivity. And, and yeah, that, really, that is, it's a very, silly that word. is so Jasmine. Yeah, but put, it's putting radical making, in front of everything. But I'm making fun of it. That's my point. Uh-huh. I'm saying, like, I'll say to Erica, that's radical acceptance, otherwise known as acceptance. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. But what I'm saying to you is I want you to practice radical acceptance of, you know, which is just a way of saying, yeah, that like, if you can just accept that this is who you are. Obviously, I don't mean accepting everything. I mean, most of the, that's the whole problem. Most of the things in the world, I don't accept at all. I I want almost everything to change, but I, I can accept some things about myself. That's all I mean. You are an interesting study, Marianne, because like on one hand, you're like super frustrated with yourself, but on the other hand, you think you're right all the time, you know? And I say that with, you know, radical well, honesty. I, <laughs> I, I am right all the time. I just don't always accomplish what I want to accomplish. That's, that's, well. a, it's a whole different thing, but yeah, I mean, we've had this conversation so many times. I don't know who it is out there who doesn't think they're right. Do people go around having ideas and saying, I know this is wrong, but this is uh, what yeah. I think. Everybody thinks Me. they're right. I don't think I'm right. I don't know what I'm doing. Most well, then of the you time. should change your mind. You should listen to me <laughs> because I am right. I do listen to you. But like part of the reason we started our hen house, you know, 
tw- it's their 12 year anniversary. 10 billion right? years ago. 12 years this month, by the way, was because we don't think there is one right way to change the world for animals. We think there are a multiplicity of inroads for changing the world for them. And therefore, I don't know. And so just wait a second. I don't want to leave this piece of this conversation. People thinking that I think I know the right way to do everything. No, I definitely don't know that. I okay. I don't even know one right way. I just think I'm right in my opinions about, you know, animals and, and that sort of thing. That's why I hold those opinions, because I think they're right. As we were talking about what to chat about today, I told you about a story that happened where I shared a graphic from an animal protection group that I have a lot of respect and adoration for. I shared a graphic on my social media about the truth about, you know, egg production and how horrible it is. So I shared that, got to the next slide, and it talked about the males and how they're all, all the little male chicks are killed. Shared that. I got to the next slide and it, it, it talked about some kind of campaign to no longer create male chicks. And I didn't share it because I was like, ah, okay. And then I got a message from someone that had seen the two graphics I shared and they were like, thank you for sharing this. You know, I've been trying to go vegan, but I've been eating organic eggs. So I guess I've been vegetarian, but now that I read this, I'm going to no longer eat eggs. I'm going to do totally vegan, vegan, vegan. And that's great. Yeah, super great. great. Yeah, so great. I was like, oh, okay, well, I, I don't always think social media stuff works. I usually think it's an echo chamber, but I guess it does sometimes. And that was a perfect example of it. But it did make me wonder if I had shared the next graphic, if they would have gone vegan or if they would have thought, oh, okay, phew, I don't have to deal with the fact that the boy chicks are being killed at birth in these incredibly horrific, inhumane ways. I'm just going to keep eating eggs then. And I don't, I'll never know the answer, but I brought this up to you. And we started talking about that age old question of welfare reforms versus liberation. And I, I, wasn't sure I wanted to discuss it on the show because I feel like it's a conversation that's been we've discussed so many times. Everyone's discussed it so many times, but the discussions sometimes evolve because the, you know, the animal rights landscape, the campaign landscape is evolving. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not sure that we have discussed it that much. I mean, we've made clear what our positions are, but, but we've kind of avoided the discussion, at least back in the day we did, because there was so much hostility around it. There didn't seem to any, be any point in constantly, you know, bringing it up and battering people with it. Mercy for Animals, it's a vegan organization, but a lot of the campaigns it has are for welfare reforms. Humane League, really spearheading the open cages campaign around the world, getting loads of effective altruism money, all the effective altruism money that is coming into the movement. And that's a really lot of money. It's all welfare reform. It's a lot of it has to do with battery cages. Like, like, so these large organizations are really focused on, on welfare reforms. And I don't see any reason not to talk about it. I, I still hold to the same position that what I believe in is universal veganism. I just wonder whether people who are in favor of welfare reform, I want to explore the strategies a little bit more because I know these are passionately vegan people, at least some of them. And so do they think that if you pursue welfare reforms, it will make animal products more expensive and people less likely to buy them? 
if you pursue welfare reforms, is it just because you're just facing the fact that we're not going to turn the world vegan? So we might as well at least try to make these animals' lives less horrific, accepting the fact that they are still horrific, not pretending that they're not. Though I guess some people would pretend, you know, like there's a whole gamut of different positions. Should all of this money in this movement, and not that I, you know, not that I have any control over this, people will do what they think is right, not what I think is right. In my opinion, should all of this money be going into like getting rid of battery cages? When we all know that, you know, just because hens aren't in battery cages just means they're in a slightly higher circle of hell. It doesn't mean that their lives are good. And I, you know, there are people who are passionately vegan, who are in this movement, who are really smart, who are really pursuing these campaigns. I think it's deserves more, more conversation than it's getting at the moment. I think the thing that started me talking about it was that Ezra Klein column that we talked about last week in which he, he suggested the, the groups that he would give to and that he thought people should give to. And three of them were, you know, mainly pursuing welfare reforms to make factory farming less horrific. He's a passionate vegan. The others were, you know, the new products, the new meats. And of course, we are in a different place than we were 10 years ago, a very different place, because now it does seem like it's possible. Maybe it doesn't to everybody, but it seems like it's possible we'll get out of this because there's 12 new products every day that are getting funded with millions of dollars. I mean, it's crazy. It's just crazy how this world is exploding. And the climate implications, which we, of course, I'll be talking about later on the interview, the climate implications of, of doing this to animals, even if we can never actually get people for some bizarre reason to care about the animals. The climate implications are so enormous. So universal veganism seems immeasurably more possible than it did 10 years ago. Right. I mean, I do think that ultimately at the end of the day, we, we have, the, you know, the, the same mindset that we, there is no one right way. That's why our hen house exists to dive into all of the various different ways of change making. And I will reiterate something I've said so many times, which is that even if something doesn't resonate with you, doesn't mean that you know, all it means is you don't need to focus on it. So if you're listening to us talk to someone about a particular campaign that might seem too in your face or too aggressive or too soft or too welfare or too liberation, whatever it is, like it's just good to be aware of all of these moving parts and find where you fit and what you're most passionate about. Where does your authenticity fit in to your change making? And that's a question I've asked myself and shifted. I do think that in the past, and I'm sure this is still very much alive in many people's strategies, there has been the sense that by pursuing welfare reforms, we set back the possibility that there will ever be liberation because we make people feel better. We make people think that raising animals for food is basically okay, as long as we do it the right way, which of course it's not. It's still hell. It's just maybe, maybe not quite as horrible. That has always been a really important part of this conversation. It does not seem to be as prominent anymore. I mean, I can see that argument. I don't think that argument is nonsensical by any means, but I've never seen any indication that anybody feels, hardly anybody, feels bad about eating animals regardless of how they're raised. I mean, people just, people just don't seem to fucking care. Like, like <laughs> it makes no difference to, you know, there are a few people but for the vast majority, this doesn't seem to be that a really big piece of the puzzle. Uh, 
but you know, I could be wrong. So there is that, that's always been an additional twist in this conversation that, you know, for some people, they just really worry that if you promote cage-free eggs, uh, or if you, you know, get rid of battery cages and say, well, you, you should go cage-free, everybody will say, oh, it, it's fine now. Everything's good. I, I'll be, I'll feel comfortable eating these eggs. Whereas, you know, my other point is that it seems to me people feel comfortable eating any eggs anytime. Most people. I don't know. It will never solve this problem because, you know, this isn't going to happen in my life. Well, Maybe you right, guys no. will figure it out. No, but I'll, I just I'll think, be dead. I do wonder if that's cheery. I do wonder if, you know, all of the money and time and, and brain power, if, if all of it that was going toward welfare reform was instead going toward, you know, supporting plant-based meats and things like yeah. that, if we would get there quicker, but you know, I don't know. And I know that different and things also, resonate with different what, people and I'm not going to focus on welfare reforms because it doesn't sit well with me, even though I yeah. do understand that different groups, including a lot of groups that we feature on our henhouse are, are doing it very strategically because, because of research that they've done to show that it, it drives up egg prices. It, it, it makes it much more likely that people make other, that companies, that they're that they make other shifts after they they have you know some better quote unquote right. better reform which i think is mostly bullshit but sometimes it's like the tiniest bit better on the way to their horrible death right i you know i'm not sure there's uh, it's true that one can argue that this is not money well spent but at the same time it's not our money. Like, like I, I think we should always advocate for what we think is, uh, is the most useful way forward. But, you know, none of us really know that. And people who have that money have decided that they think that that's the most useful way forward. And just because I don't understand it, I'm not sure there's any way to talk them out of spending their money that way. You know, I mean, I might wish that they spent it, spent it better, but, uh, but they're not going to. A lot of the money coming in isn't even necessarily vegan money, um, particularly in the effective altruism side. They're obviously not going to be spending their money to advocate for veganism. But the money that is vegan money and, and just is doing this strategically, people believe in that. And so we should always argue for what we believe in, but face the fact that people are going to take different approaches and just really stick to the approach that we think is is right. And not like, I just I'd rather be right than effective. I don't ever want to like adopt that kind of thing. Like I don't want to ever say, well, veganism is just the right thing to do. That's what I would advocate for regardless. No, I want to do what's most effective. But personally, I think in this world where we're having all these, I already said this, but I'm going to say it again, damn it. When we have all these alternative foods coming on that are so good and where, as we will be discussing for the rest of this episode, climate change is a crisis and animal agriculture is a huge part of it. Like, let's go for broke. Yeah, I just want to circle back real quick to what I said a few minutes ago about my goal for this year, which is curiosity. And I think that, you know, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm realizing that, that 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 is applicable here too. I am indeed curious. I am curious why so many groups that I respect, so many activists I respect, respect focus on welfare reforms when I don't fundamentally believe in it. And so I will approach it with curiosity. And so if you want to join me, then join me. 
And it seems to me here at our hen house, we're in a position to find that out. So let's, yeah, absolutely. let's see if we can find it out. So before we go to our interview today, which is actually not at all related to welfare reform, <laughs> before we not talk even remotely, to, not even remotely, before we talk to our guests today, I know that a new animal law podcast dropped at the, or just right at the end of the year. So tell us about it. Yeah, I have a great interview with Tyler Lobdell. He's with Food and Water Watch. And it's about a lawsuit that they just successfully brought in Idaho in the Ninth Circuit. And it has to do with water. And, you know, this isn't even welfare reform. It doesn't have anything to do with the animals per se. It has to do with all the environmental harms, particularly the pollution of water caused by factory farms. And again, these, you know, it's the same kind of thing, though. It's like step by step using these statutes. How much do they accomplish? But I love this interview because both because he he really got into the details of this Clean Water Act uh, suit and some of the just dreadful interpretations that have been made of the Clean Water Act to weaken it and the dreadful condition of the waters of Idaho, which has become just factory farm central, you know, in relatively recent times. He also, we discuss a little bit about the big picture and whether these statutes or the available law can ever be used to really put a big dent in factory farming. Great interview. It's pretty legal. I'm warning you. It's pretty legal, but it's really interesting. Very cool. Well, the Animal Law Podcast, as a non-lawyer, I find it very accessible to non-lawyers. You do such a great job with it. I'm so looking forward to all that you bring us this year with the Animal Law Podcast. And we and we have so much in store for you for our hen house this year. So in the coming weeks and months, we will let you in on some of our plans for this year. But for now, let's start off the year with a bang-up interview. Truly epic. I love the guests today. Anita Kronj is a co-founder of Toronto Pig Save and executive director of the Global Animal Save Movement. The groups use a love-based community organizing approach to mobilize activists to bear witness to animals at the front gates of slaughterhouses. In 2019, Animal Save Movement expanded to include climate and health save chapters, moving the group's focus beyond animal vigils to include campaigns such as the Plant-Based Treaty Initiative and the Stop Animal Gifting Campaign. Anita holds a PhD in political science and has taught university courses on social movement strategies and is a follower of Leo Tolstoy and Gandhi's philosophy of love and nonviolence. She will be joined by Nicola Harris. Nicola Harris is a director of communications at Animal Save Movement. After becoming a vegan activist in 2002, Nicola launched a string of pressure campaigns, which saw the closure of a goat vivisection laboratory and puppy farm, as well as ending the sale of fur and foie gras in dozens of retailers. I have to tell you, these are two amazing, dynamic women. You're going to love this interview. In fact, three. They will be joining Marianne right after this. 
If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Anita and Nicola. Great to see you, Miriam. Thank you for having us. It is great to have you. And Anita, you've been, of course, been on the podcast before, but Nicola, it's your first time here. And Anita, since the last time we spoke, the SAVE movement has expanded to include climate and health chapters. Why this broadening of the message beyond the animals themselves? There's a great opportunity to get where we want to go faster if we work on the climate crisis. I think there's a great recognition that you know plant-based solutions are an essential part to avoid a climate catastrophe. So the Animal Save movement has recently broadened to include Health Save, Climate Save, and Youth, youth Climate Save. So I know that one of the, the projects of the Climate Save movement, the enormous project, is the plant-based treaty. And now I understand this isn't exactly a treaty, or at least it isn't yet. It is, it is a goal to have a treaty. But can you explain just a little bit about what the goals are here of, of what you're calling the plant-based treaty? So we'd like the plant-based treaty to become a companion to the Paris Agreement, because at the moment the Paris Agreement doesn't really focus on solutions, so it's silent on fossil fuels, hence the fact that there is a fossil fuel treaty, and it's silent on food systems, hence a plant-based treaty. You know, we want plant-based foods to be right up there as a climate solution. So our treaty is basically three core principles that we would like to become a treaty. So the first principle is relinquish, and this is based on no land use change and it's to halt the deforestation attributed to animal agriculture so we're calling for like no new farms no new slaughterhouses no new deforestation the second principle is redirect and that's about incentivizing a plant-based food system and building a plant-based economy this will involve measures such as redirecting subsidies away from animals towards plant-based foods it would mean looking at things like meat taxes and just any kind of measures which helps the shift come quicker. And it would also involve things like public information campaigns and governments really taking lead on making plant-based foods accessible to everyone. And then the third core principle is about restoring. And that's that's all the reforestation, rewilding, that includes forests, oceans, peatlands. And so we're hoping that if we can create enough bottom-up pressure we can ensure that national governments come together to negotiate a plant-based treaty and implement these policies. Yeah, these are very, very powerful policies. And and as you said, it's not at the moment, well, for national governments, I mean, you hope it would be, but we're not at that point yet. But it's really, the idea is that gathering support for this will lead to a real treaty. So who at the moment are you seeking to have signed this? And what is the strategy for turning these these powerful, powerful principles into actual policy? Well, everyone can endorse the plant-based treaty. So if you go to plantbasedtreaty.org and click the yellow button, you can endorse the treaty either as an individual, a business, 
an organization or a city. We are saying that this is a huge global problem. And so everyone needs to get involved with the solutions. So at the moment, like we have over 20,000 individuals endorsing, over 500 NGOs and 300 businesses. And we have two cities. The two cities are Boynton Beach in Florida. They endorse the treaty because they are including plant-based food promotion as you know part of their climate action plan. And then we've also got Rosario in Argentina. That's the third largest city in Argentina. They've endorsed the treaty as well. So that's like a really important acknowledgement that plant-based foods need to be part of the climate solution. And this will help build the pressure on the national governments. We also have a lot of support from politicians. So we've got around a dozen members of the European Parliament who've also endorsed. We've got 19 members of parliament in the UK who've signed an early day motion which welcomes the plant-based treaty and it calls for you know a shift to a plant-based food system. We've also got the backing from IPCC scientists. We've got four Nobel laureates who've endorsed also and one of them is actually the 2021 prize winner. He is called Klaus Hasselmann. He's won the Nobel prize for modeling earth climate and reliably predicting global warming so even he's endorsed and it just shows like the science is on our side and we are starting to get political support and we're just hoping to keep building this momentum and we basically just need everyone to get on board and endorse yeah this is really a framework for a powerful grassroots movement and and that's one of the things i really love about it is that I think there are other people, though I don't run into them very often, who are nervous about climate change. I'm completely panicked. Other people seem to be mildly, I don't know, <laughs> disturbed. But if you are one of the people who's panicked or or somewhat disturbed, this gives you kind of like a way to turn your anxiety into, into something you can go to your legislators, your local legislators with and say, why don't we do this? Is that one of your ideas for how this is going to move forward? Absolutely. Uh, it's uh, The plant-based treaty is a meta campaign, so you can have thousands of campaigns under it. One part of it is to get a global treaty and create bottom-up pressure. Another part of it is to take action at schools, cities, businesses. So like we have guides in our campaign hub on the website where you can veganize menus at schools or plant a community garden and you know have uh, film screenings or do all the so many different things you can do at schools and the same is true for hospitals or cities at the same time in the campaign hub you also have draft resolutions that you could take to your city to to endorse the treaty and in terms of a model we we use the fossil fuel treaty as a model um, a couple of years ago uh, environmental groups got together and created a fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty or fossil fuel treaty. And it's a brilliant model. And so we met with the chair of the fossil fuel treaty in late April, Janelle, who's Genesis Butler's mom, Nicola and myself met with her. Uh, I, I know support Berman from the nineties. She was a hero of mine back then when she was a blockade leader to save old growth forests in Western Canada. And she subsequently went to work for Greenpeace uh, as their energy campaigner, and then started Forest Ethics, an environmental group which turned into for, um, Stand Earth, a very big environmental group. So we met with her with the question, how can we put animal agriculture on the agenda of uh, the climate negotiations? And she said, you got to target governments. They're the most powerful actors. And, you know, environmentalists often say, you know, they talk about system change, not individual change. 
And her critique of our movement was it was all about go vegan, individual change. And, you know, we, we want both. We want individual change and we want system change. But she had a good point that we need to focus more on system change and powerful governments. So basically, we copied her model. And Sapora said, historically, global treaties like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty or the Vienna Convention to ban fossil fuel carbofluorocarbons or ozone-depleting substances was achieved from the bottom up. So like in the case of CFCs that deplete the ozone layer, the city of Boston passed a resolution to ban CFCs. And then the state of Massachusetts endorsed and eventually the national government felt pressure from different cities and states in the US to launch uh, global negotiations, which banned CFCs called you know, the Montreal Protocol. We're basically using the same model. And so we're very grateful to the fossil fuel treaty because uh, we were able to leapfrog and launch our treaty within four months. Uh, so we launched in August of, of this year. It is an extraordinary idea. And as you were talking about, I'm not sure I thought about it in these terms before we started talking, but I'm not going to say anything good about climate change. I don't think there's anything positive to say about the fact that billions of people and animals are going to suffer horrifically. But it is the first time, I shouldn't even say but, even in that context, this is the first time we really, as vegans, as passionate vegan animal rights activists, have been able to pursue a policy change that actually reflects what we believe. I mean, you were never able to go to a legislature before and say, let's let's promote everybody eating plant-based. It would have been nonsensical, uh, or they would have thought it was nonsensical. And now all of a sudden, because of the of the dire consequences of animal agriculture, People who care about it, it all comes together. People who care about animals are advocating for exactly what they want. And that's for a, a global shift to a more humane, but also a less climate damaging diet. Yes, I, I think this is a case where the ethics matches the science. So our science based treaty, uh, you know, requires that we quickly phase out uh, fossil fuels and animal agriculture. We face a methane emergency. We, you know, we face a climate catastrophe of uh, temperatures rising more than two degrees Celsius if we continue business as usual. So we need to quickly phase out. So one of uh, the animal safe movement's inspirations is Leo Tolstoy. And, you know, he came up with that great definition of bearing witness, like don't look away, but come close, as close as you can and try to help. I'm just paraphrasing. But he also said, when we wish to harm others, we really do evil to ourselves. And so the message to me is like, when we wish to harm other animals, you know, it's going to lead to the destruction of the planet. We face the possibility of runaway climate change with increased emissions of methane, carbon dioxide, and nitrous oxide. And in the case of animal agriculture, it is responsible for a third of methane emissions, and we face a methane emergency. So we need to quickly phase out animal agriculture, according to IPCC scientist, who happens to be vegan, uh, Peter Carter. In his words, we got to quickly phase out fossil fuels and animal agriculture if we, if we want to try to change our course and avoid all the tipping points that are on their way. According to him, we already faced three tipping mega, mega events. That is the Amazon turning into a net source of carbon dioxide before being the lungs of the earth and the sink. Another mega event was um, the Siberian forest fires. They were bigger than any of the other forest fires. And, and 
it also could lead to the melting of the permafrost and the release of more methane. Then a third mega event was the Arctic ice disappearing in the summer. And that, that could lead to a positive feedback loop where the dark surface in the Arctic would absorb more heat. And that could also trigger events for, the, for Greenland and also for the conveyor, the transatlantic conveyor belt. Those are three mega events. And we're going to have more mega events unless we change course dramatically. And the plant-based treaty and the fossil fuel treaty are two campaigns that offer solutions to this incredible you know, life-threatening climate crisis. I mean, we've been saying for a long time that there aren't three different reasons for going vegan. It's not like the animals or the environment or your health. They're all this, there's a synergy amongst all of these issues. And that's starting to become more and more obvious. And this campaign is really highlighting that these aren't different things. They're the same thing. And if our, our treatment of the animals is, is and our treatment of the earth are not separate. I want to get into one one thing that's that's more specific and not not so much in generalities, but one of the things I really love about promoting the plant-based treaty is that I see so often people turn the industry or even environmentalists talking about phasing out cows, you know, they're talking about phasing out, not the beef industry, but but other aspects of the industry, but relying on chicken because chicken really is less climate unfriendly than beef. So the idea of us being in there promoting plant-based, I think is so particularly important to avoid the the continuing unbelievable exploitation of these birds. Can you talk about that a little bit about how to counter that argument? Having something slightly less bad is not an option. This is like a code red for humanity. As Peter Carter said, global veganization is a survival imperative. So it's it's about all of our survival. It's about humans. It's about non-human animals. Just causing more suffering and exploitation is not a solution. It, that's what's got us into this mess in the first place. You know, and a lot of this is driven by the animal agriculture lobbies because they are trying to put animal ag as a solution to, to climate change, just like the fossil fuel industry. It's the same again. So we just can't stand for any of it, even. If you look at the climate impacts with chicken farming, it has resulted in like a soil crisis. The so uh, chicken farming is awful for soil acidification, which will mean that people can't even grow crops. It uses water, it uses land, like plant-based is the only solution that we have. And it, you know, it is better for us, it's better for the animals, and it is better for the planet. The Amazon is being deforested for animal feed for chickens and pigs in China and Europe. If you look at the deforestation that has taken place all over the world, including Canada and the United States, England, 80% of agricultural land is for animal agriculture. If we end animal agriculture, we can reclaim that land and reforest the earth and absorb the carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's you know, a key part of the solution. If you look at the animal agriculture industry, they're also trying to come up with solutions like face masks for cows so they wouldn't emit methane. So they're always trying to have these minor reforms that are not addressing the root causes. The root cause of our climate crisis is how we treat other animals. You know, once we change that, then we're, we'll move on a path, you know, a path which is 
you know, a completely different way of living on the planet, one where we have forests that we share habitat with for, for other species. And, and also think about the idea of how big this crisis is. It's not a time for half measures. When people were facing the threat of fascism in the Second World War, you didn't talk about half measures. And I think people who are suggesting half measures, they won't work. We're going to have one mega event after another. We're going to cross tipping points. It's not a time for half measures. Such a powerful message. And I, of course, am like you, completely and totally panicked. Uh, but I mean, we all have to face the fact that most people out there are not, uh, you know, for one reason or another. But one of the things I think that's so powerful here is that is that it does provide a tool for grassroots activists to go to local legislators who, you know, aren't really showing any concern yet. And you mentioned Boynton Beach, Florida, which I am astounded about, but maybe that's a town in Florida that had a particularly progressive attitude towards climate. But can this also be a useful tool to just go to a legislature, a local legislature that isn't there yet and and sort of, I mean, not introduce the issue maybe. I mean, everybody's heard about climate change, but actually raise their anxieties about it a little bit. I actually encourage everyone to take the plant-based treaty to their local representatives and say, I am concerned about climate change. This is one of the solutions and I want you to take action. They have a responsibility. You have elected them and they are responsible for policies at the city level. So anyone can take the treaty there, put some pressure on, write to politicians, phone them up, ask for a meeting. And and that's exactly what we're doing. Boynton Beach, obviously they endorse because plant-based solutions are already part of their climate action plan. But we have plant-based treaty teams setting up all across the world and they are pressuring their politicians. In LA, we've got LA Animal Save and Animal Alliance Network. They are working together to try and get LA to endorse. They started off by getting an endorsement from their local representative, Paul Cortez. And so he endorsed and now, you know, they're trying to meet with him and get him to champion it and and make it policy at the city level. And then we're doing the same in Bristol in the UK. We've met with the deputy mayor. He he like has endorsed the treaty along with 11 other councillors there. You know, he's trying to help us get it into into the city so that they pass a motion and that they report on it, set targets, make policies. So we can really, right from the bottom, we can all take it to our representatives and we can add that pressure and we can make changes at the city level, which then filter upwards towards national governments. And the changes you're talking about at the city level, uh, I mean, as you alluded to, it's not just adopting the treaty. You want actual you have suggestions for actual policies that cities and towns could institute to just carry out the purpose of the treaty. Isn't that right? Absolutely. Endorsing the treaty is largely symbolic, but that's like the very minimum that they can do. And, and once they've made that commitment, you would hope that they would build upon it and it creates this opportunity to roll out plant-based menus in schools, hospitals, prisons, in all public settings. And, you know, there are some cities around the world that are starting to do that more and more. And I think the plant-based treaty is a really good first step. And then from there, you can build on it. Are you excited about New York City having a a plant-based mayor? 100%. Yeah. Eric Adams is wonderful. And it's one of the most important cities in the world. And uh, so we're we're working on trying to get New York City to endorse I should mention that LA endorsed the fossil fuel treaty. Toronto, where I live, endorsed the fossil fuel treaty in a vote of 20 to 22. 
Uh, so there was overwhelming support. Toronto's the biggest city in Canada for the fossil fuel treaty. So we, we feel that you know we could do this in every city. So we'd really encourage all your listeners to go to our website uh, under the campaign hub. We have actions cities can take. We have a draft motion that you could take to your city to vote on. We want to set up plant-based treaty groups in different cities. So we already have a number of them. But you know, if you'd like to get involved, just write to us at hello at plantbasedtreaty.org. We're going to have a form on our website shortly where you can sign up and join a group. Yeah, and it, it, it makes a huge difference. We want to do what it took to get the ozone agreement, you know, to protect the global ozone agreement. It took all these cities to, you know, pass resolutions. So we need to do the same thing here. We need as many cities as possible to endorse the treaty and to start incorporating plant-based solutions in their climate action plans and to use their procurement powers to promote plant-based foods, to have plant-based festivals, street festivals. And, you know, cities have a jurisdiction in a lot of different areas where they, they could be part of the solution to the climate crisis. Yeah, I, I love this. And you know, it's been a long time since animal advocates have been able to go to a local legislature and argue for something that there was no risk that, that they were going to be told this isn't important enough or this is, you know, nobody cares or like we're used to that. Nobody's going to say that about the climate crisis. I mean, they may not be on board, but they're not going to say it's not important. People are, are, are past that level. So I think there's an enormous, enormous ability for empowerment. Uh, nobody should hesitate to approach their legislators with this. So I, I also want to talk to you about your other campaign. But before that, just tell us where, where people can find out more, where they can sign it, where they can find out all of this information that you're talking about plantbasedtreaty.org. From there, you can endorse the treaty either as an individual, business, organization, or city. Then obviously that is the minimum we want you to do. You can also visit the campaign hub where you can download all the tools and resources to take it to your city and work to bring changes out there. And then we also have a take action item on our menu. And through that, there are sample letters which you can send off to politicians. It's all pre-written for you. You've just got to type in your details and it sends it off for you. So yeah, That's we great. encourage everyone to get involved with that. We're talking here, and of course, it's so obvious to us, but we have to all remember that a lot of people are still not making those connections with animal agriculture. And this is really an opportunity to educate people because, as you pointed out, the science is kind of undeniable, in spite of the fact that the UN, the recent UN Climate Change Conference managed to deny a lot of the science. Can you just talk a little bit about, about some of the disappointing results from that and why that means that grassroots action is so important? I think I would highlight, first of all, what happened in August of this year when the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as the IPCC, this is a UN panel that assesses the science impacts and response strategies. It's very important to follow the IPCC. So for the first time, it's really made a big issue of, of uh, the methane emergency and the importance of animal agriculture. So like a third of the emissions from methane come from animal ag. And methane is a really potent gas. It's about has about 80 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. And it's rising, like the emissions are going up and up and up every year. And it's such a potent gas. And so it's a huge concern and the, the Guardian one week before the IPCC put out its report, said that there is a methane emergency. And it was quoting 
the lead reviewer for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the UN Secretary General said there's code red for humanity. That came out in August. According to this, uh, the IPCC, we have five years at best to make radical changes. So in order to assess Glasgow, what's known as COP26 or Conference of the Parties, COP26, you need to look at the science. So if you, uh, you know, give it a, a grade, you know, basically it's a failing grade because the science is telling us that we face a code red, we face an emergency, and the leaders weren't acting like that. So what are the conclusions from COP26, from Greta Thunberg, the youth activist for Fridays for Future, and, and the Guardian newspaper, was that we need to act outside of COP and start working on solutions ourselves. So one of the cool things about the plant-based treaty, it provides mechanisms for that, like a framework where we have all these guides in the campaign hub, as well as pointing to the need for a global agreement, because we need both. We need a COP where political leaders actually lead. Right now, they're not leading. But we also need all societal actors to do everything they can, including cities, schools, workplaces, people in their homes, and so forth. COP was a humongous failure. It didn't rise up to the challenges that we're facing right now. Yeah, and a real wake-up call for grassroots activists that nobody's going to save us unless we save ourselves. Historically, major change happens when there's bottom-up pressure. The Fossil Fuel Treaty and the Plant-Based Treaty is trying to get all these endorsements of individuals, groups, businesses, cities. We need bottom-up pressure in order to have this global agreement. So I do want to move on to your second issue, which seems like it's a much smaller issue, but it's not really a small issue at all when you find out what's really going on here. And it's a very, very related issue. It's called Stop Animal Gifting. And can you tell us what this campaign entails? We thought of the campaign earlier this year uh, when we were exploring Hatching Hope. Hatching Hope is a project by Heifer International and Cargill. Cargill is one of the biggest slaughterhouse and animal feed companies. And Heifer International is a nonprofit that gifts animals, like gifts goats, chickens, rabbits, and expands animal agriculture around the world. And their budget is about $100 million a year. And so they came up with this project called Hatching Hope, where they're trying to get 100 million people to adopt backyard chickens by 2030, which would be, you know, an animal and ecological catastrophe, you know, when we should be moving in the opposite direction of phasing out animal agriculture. That raised the alarm bells. This is not a small scale. This is huge. And they want to get more than 60 million of the 100 million people in India to do backyard chickens. So we have animal safe groups there, and they went to the state of Odisha on the eastern coast of India to see how Hatching Hope was working. And it was disastrous. Like these are largely plant based tribal communities that where they're sort of now adopting chickens and eggs, you know, in their school programs. And it's a disaster. So what we did was we sort of developed an overall campaign called Stop Animal Gifting where we target all charities that are engaged in this. So even very respectable charities like Oxfam engages in the gift of power goat, you know, like ridiculous like ads right before Christmas. You have uh, World Vision, which is one of the largest development charities in the world with a budget of almost $3 billion a year. You have Christian Aid, Feed the Children, and various other groups that engage in animal gifting. And so we want to put a stop to it because what these groups are doing is expanding animal agriculture around the world 
at a time of a climate crisis. So they're being part of the problem and not part of the solution. We hear a lot from environmentalists about how veganism, like we're imposing cultural imperialism on people in other countries. And and they often use this as an excuse for why they're not vegan either, which is really confusing. But can you talk a little bit about how you respond to arguments that plant-based diets undermine traditions and freedoms of indigenous peoples? Because you hear that so much. We have been focusing a lot on Odisha. And when you look at the tribal communities there, they have been following predominantly plant-based diets for generations. And this sudden shift to incorporating chickens and eggs and goats is like a new thing that Haifa have come over and imposed on them. It's just not a valid argument. Like these people don't necessarily want to be farming. And in fact, when our campaigners went to Odisha and spoke to local communities, they don't actually want to be doing it. They just feel they've got no choice because that's the only solution that's been presented to them. They would much prefer to stick with their plant-based diet. What we really need is charities to actually maybe look at the situation in a bit more depth and, and see what people want and look at plant-based solutions. So I did a bit of reading into addition myself because, you know, I thought, well, what are the solutions? What are the problems? What are the solutions? And I found a really great report from Odisha University, and it was about the problems in that area, growing lentils and pulses and things like that. And it just turns out that they have some problems with the soil. They have problems with water clogging. They need some irrigation. And a big part of it is that they don't have access to quality seeds in the quantities they need. And so really all they need is a bit of help there. They don't need this big animal gifting project. They need tools, they need water irrigation, and they need access to like a community seed hub. That is how simple the solution is. I, I think that's an extraordinary insight. The two arguments you often hear that I often hear are the uh, you're interfering with their cultural traditions, but also that they only have available to them marginal lands, which is not adequate for crops. So they have to use for grazing or raising animals. What you're pointing out is, well, marginal lands don't have to stay marginal lands. Maybe they're marginal for a reason that can be fixed. And maybe there are crops that can be grown on lands that do better with lands that are somewhat prone to drought or whatever. That's the direction that we need to be to be moving. So I think that's such a powerful message in so many different ways. What can people do to help regarding this issue? If you go to stopanimalgifting.org, we've got um, a landing page there and you can take action by sending an email off to development charities that are engaging in animal gifting. And it's just a quick letter you can send to basically ask them to stop the animal gifting and start implementing plant-based solutions. So that's obviously one thing you can do. Secondly, you can obviously not support those charities with your money and you know encourage your friends and families not to give money to those schemes and instead you know if you want to give a charitable gift go to a charity that gifts trees and seeds and water irrigation and you know support the charities that are doing really good work if charities see that money is going to those sorts of projects rather than theirs it will hopefully help them think again yeah money talks it always has it always will these are such powerful insights and such powerful invitations to activism. So I really want to thank you for that. And thank you for sharing them with our listeners. Is there anything else you wanted to share before we part? 
I would just invite your listeners to to a vigil. If there is an animal vigil in their city, it's uh, something that's very transformational. I just find that the the plant-based treaty and the stop animal gifting campaigns are a good addition to what animal activists can do because um, they're very solutions oriented. But I do think, you know, we need to not forget the faces of the individual victims, the more than 70 billion land animals and the trillions of marine animals that are killed each year. I think when people see, meet the victims face to face, it's a, it's a strong motivator to work for them every day. While it's important to just jump on the, you know, the plant-based treaty bandwagon and these other campaigns, I think it's also important to see the faces of the victims and know why we're doing what we do in a very motivated way. Thank you for adding that because your message includes both the emotional connection, which can be so painful and so difficult to do, but does drive one, and a way to turn that into action that isn't, you're not constantly living in that pain, uh, and you can live in, in some kind of hope and action. So that is such a powerful message for our New Year's episode. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us. It's really meant a lot. Thank you so much, Marion. Really good talking to you. Thank you for having us. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know, info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety surprising. Why Californian restaurants are blocking new animal welfare law. This is one of two articles that involve anxieties that are at a fever pitch because you remember the ballot initiatives and when California, Massachusetts, some other states passed laws or the citizens of those states passed laws that would require some minimal improvements in the space afforded to farm animals, but they weren't going to come into effect for a long time. Well, they're coming into effect, <laughs> and believe me, anxieties are rising in the industry. These articles are both from the folks over at Plant-Based News, and the first one is about California. The subtitle is, Why Californian Restaurants Are Blocking Plants for Pigs to Have More Space on Farms. Yeah, they're upset. They have already sued a bunch of times. Well, the industry has sued a bunch of times. Now it's restaurants and grocers. They're trying to uh, to bring a lawsuit. You know, like, let's wait until the last minute. Why don't we? Uh? Since the law comes into effect on January 1st. And this is, you know, Prop 12 was the, was the law. And it ensures that farmers, or tries to ensure that farmers give chickens, cows, and pigs more space. And... Apparently, it is the end of the world. So this group, the California Grocers Association, Restaurant Association, et cetera, et cetera, is really upset, really particularly about the pig farming industry and, you know, who have already filed their own lawsuits but have been unsuccessful. And according to NBC News, unsurprisingly, many pork producers have not made necessary changes to fit the new regulations. They just have done nothing for all of these years. And now they're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, there's not going to be any food to eat. This is the huge, huge benefit to animals provided by this law. It calls for at least 24 square feet of space for breeding pigs. 
This is an increase of eight feet per pig, you know, and right now they don't even have enough enough room to turn around, but they will have a little bit, maybe they'll be able to turn around. I mean, pigs are very large, as you know. I love this quote. A spokesperson for the California Grocers Association told the outlet, that's NBC, the law, quote, is not going to work, unquote. Like, <laughs> it's it's a law. You don't get to decide whether it's going to work. You just have to obey. Like, do they not know what laws are? Unbelievable. So we'll see. You know, I, I don't have total confidence that these laws are going to survive. And that's certainly the case in Massachusetts, where things are even dicier. The, the big problem in Massachusetts is more about eggs, though eggs don't seem to be a problem in California. Massachusetts farmers outraged at new law to ensure animals have space to turn around. And uh, yes, they are indeed outraged. And they, they're saying this is going to cause an egg shortage across Massachusetts. Pork supplies are also expected to take a hit. This is the big change for hens. Um, you know, Massachusetts, the, the main factory farming industry in Massachusetts is eggs. The current policy allows hens just one square foot of space. And then they're going to, according to this, the law would prohibit the sale of eggs in Massachusetts from hens given less than one and a half square meters of floor space each. They must be able, like, check this out, spread both wings without touching the sides of the enclosures. Like, God help us. What is wrong with this world that that should be considered too much? Egg producers argue, this says the article, that redesigning their current systems, why are these still their current systems, I would like to ask, since they've had plenty of time to change them, will be too costly and take too much time. Well, yeah. It's like, it's like a kid who Sunday night at, at 11 tells his mother he doesn't have enough time to do his homework. How, that was me. However, advocates of the legislation point out that the industry has had years to make the, the changes. They're calling it egg Armageddon. And check this out. It will create a huge shortage. The general manager of Country Hen, Robert Beauregard, told Spectrum News. Now, Country Hen, you know, like they have... Uh, they have space. They sell their eggs at a premium because they're supposed to have space. I'll probably, probably be able to sell every egg that I have because I am in compliance with the law. But it's not all about the country hen. It's about the consumers in Massachusetts and their need for this product. Yeah, well, they don't need the product. And it's about the hens. Like, that's who it's about. And it's not about you. And it's not about the consumers. It's about the hens. Unbelievable. They're not banning eggs. They're just banning, like, the worst of the worst cruelty. The governor is like all upset about it all. Drags in the pandemic. If you think about how hard life has been for everybody who pays their bills based on the work in restaurants, I think the last thing we should do is make it even more complicated for them. Well, I personally think, Charlie Baker, that the last thing we should do is keep hens in these horrifically, horrifically cruel systems. Oh, it's in front of the legislature. We'll see what happens. What do you think that this means? They also quote the president of the Massachusetts Farm Bureau Federation, which was, of course, against the referendum. He says, I know that the egg producers from out of state are quite anxious about this, unhappy about it, he commented. The fact is the voters of Massachusetts spoke, and we don't think it's appropriate for the legislature to be making changes like this. What does that mean? Do you think they're working behind the curtain? I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, you know, clearly when the industry says that, you know, the gestation crate is gone or 
cage-free systems are taking over. Well, it's all bullshit because the minute you make them do it, they become completely hysterical. You know, there will be a bunch of predictions for the coming year, the coming new year, but I don't have them quite in hand yet. But I do have one. This is from meetingplace.com. The Chef's Table column by Michael Formicella. What's in store for 2022? Most of this is not that of, of, is not of particular interest to any of you. He thinks there'll be more uh, flavored vinegars and, and Georgian, as in the country Georgia uh, cuisine. I don't know. Mac and cheese ice cream. I don't know. But uh, there were a few things that I just thought I should mention because, <laughs> oh my God. First, he starts off with a gratitude list. Among them is to all the frontline workers who selflessly fight to keep us safe, healthy and keep us fed. You are the epitome of what makes our country one of the greatest. All right, then he gets to his predictions and here's his first one. More robotic integration in many forms will continue to grow this coming year. This certainly seems to be fueled and facilitated by operators seeking reliable replacements from the labor shortage and no pensions, minimum hours or health care insurance is needed. <laughs> So we're, we're terribly grateful to all of these workers who risk their lives to work in our hideous, hideous slaughterhouses. But we're going to fire them as soon as we can, replace them with machines. They're great people, aren't they? The other forecast that I thought was interesting, we will see more plant-based products beyond chicken nuggets available on menus. Well, you've already seen them beyond chicken nuggets and in your local grocery store as well. I concur in that one. You will not be surprised to hear. All right, finally. This is from our, our favorite, Amanda Radke from Beef Daily. Beef Strong highlights beef nutrition. Amanda has written another book. She writes children's books. And she has a passion for working with kids and teaching them where their food comes from. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure the whole truth goes into that. She's written a bunch of kids' books, and she has a new one. Just last week, my latest book titled Beef Strong was announced. Illustrated by Michelle Weber, this story takes us off the ranch and moves readers to the gym, where they learn about sports, nutrition, health, wellness, and active lifestyles, and how to eat well and fuel their bodies and brains with nutrient-dense beef. <laughs> oh my God, yeah, beef. Beef ain't that good for you. She's really troubled that young people are being told over and over again that plant-based diets are king. Yeah, they are being told that. I'm one of the people telling them that. It's true. And this program reminds kids that animal fats and proteins are a great way to get the essential nutrients. You need to thrive on the court, in the field, at school, and in life. Okay, well, good luck with that. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at ourhenhouse. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, 
thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Listener.